So, Olga, tell me, because I'm curious, why did you want to do a podcast? Well, the, it all came about the first day of my um, course this year. and um... But you are a human rights activist because you are, you know, by choice, teaching a course. And I don't know how to do that. How did I end up here? When human rights abuses are committed and companies are involved in those, either directly or indirectly, that there, there's going to be something done about it. Welcome, everyone. This is what you just heard. The conversation between Olga and Seema uh, is about this podcast, which we are launching today. So this is the pilot episode. And what we are doing is that we are trying to explore topics around the rights of others, which is the title of this podcast. And in that, uh, we would explore areas around human rights linked to various different parts of uh, human life and how that is impacting our markets, that's impacting our society itself. So there will be a lot of crossover. So now, uh, Olga uh, and Seema. So Olga, tell me, because I'm curious, why did you want to do a podcast on corporate accountability issues? Well, the, it all came about the first day of my um, course this year and um, my international human rights course with my students. We were all sitting there, mostly women, and uh, looking at me as if um, I was going to bring them something new in their lives. And I asked them, why are you here? And 80% of the class said, because I want to work in human rights. And I felt like they're looking at me for guidance as to how to become a human rights activist or how to become a human rights professional. And I don't know how to do that. How did I end up here? How did um, the people I know, the people I work with every day end up here? So I thought, let me ask Seema how she ended up here. <laughs> let me ask um, my other colleagues. And that's how I thought this would be an interesting um, uh, conversation to have. And obviously, you know, I work mostly in the corporate accountability field. So most of my friends that work in this field and most of the people I admire and I, I listen to work in this field. So probably it's a question that I would ask them. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that you said it yet again. Like, how do people you know, uh, how did they get to the field and they're human rights activists? But you are human rights activists because you are, you know, by choice, teaching a course on corporate accountability, you know, with the view of really making sure that when human rights abuses are committed and companies are involved in those, either directly or indirectly, that there, there's going to be something done about it, that there's justice. So why don't you consider yourself a human rights activist? And I, I'm curious, why do you feel that, you know, for your students, that, you know, who you are as an academic would not be sufficient, you know, for them to basically realize their their destiny, I suppose, on, on taking forward work in the space? It, that it's interesting the way I, one thinks of oneself and I when I stand up they're talking to them it's obvious that they're looking up at me as if um, I had the answers to um, human rights um, abuses problems issues legal challenges and I I can't help but feeling 
well, what I do doesn't really resolve anything, doesn't really help anyone. So for me, being a human rights activist is someone that actually has an impact on the life of others, that devotes their lives for the rights of others. And and for me, that's is mediated by the work that people like you do. So who I do generally consider a human rights activist, someone whose everyday life is much closer to making an impact and to making a change on a specific people. So um, how to be a human rights activist? I think it is very interesting and it would be great if I can understand because as, as someone who is working in the university, I've worked Olga with you, uh, what corporate social responsibility actually is. And when you, Olga, is referring it to human rights, what does that actually mean for you at this point, even though we don't really know how you know to be a human rights activist? So, Olga, introduction, and then we get into the topic. Fantastic. Um, yes, well, it's um, great to uh, start this conversation, and um, hopefully we will explore all these topics um, much more in depth. My uh, name is Olga Martin-Ortega. I'm professor of international law at the School of Law at the University of Greenwich. And I... Um, when I introduce myself to my students, I normally say, and I've been uh, working on uh, business and human rights for 20 years. And it's very scary <laughs> to hear that um, out loud. So that's uh, my background is mostly academic. Seema, please. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so my name is Seema Joshi. Uh, I am uh, a, a lawyer by training. I'm born in Canada. Uh, I have worked um, in the area of, I'd say, human rights and, and business, natural resources, uh, in particular, and extractives, probably, uh, you know, for almost 20 years. <laughs> and essentially, I've worked, um, you know, in at, with the UN, you know, in Asia, looking at developing and implementing uh, local governance programs, which basically means giving rights to people, you know, so they can make better decisions uh, about their local environment and how basically it's being used uh, because of, you know, companies basically coming in and making deals with governments, you know, which basically results in them losing their rights. So, um, I mean, from there, you know, I basically then have worked for two um, human rights uh, NGOs, uh, one of them being Global Witness, uh, where specifically focused on, uh, again, sort of how how do you basically strengthen rights against companies for their involvement in, in crimes around the natural resource use and extraction. So that means timber, mining, uh, you know, when these uh, when there's harm that happens to others, but it's linked to stuff like corruption conflict, um, sort of looking at ways to basically get accountability, you know, in, in the places where these companies are located. Uh, and basically on that same thread, most recently, um, I was a director of thematic issues at Amnesty International based in the Secretariat. And, you know, for most of my time there, I was there for about nine years. I worked as head of business and human rights, and essentially it was that very much that agenda that, you know, how do we actually strengthen the legal accountability, you know, of companies for their involvement in human rights abuses? Because as, as Olga knows better than I do, um, the international framework and standards of accountability for companies is very weak. And, you know, while, you know, uh, while if I commit a crime, I'm, I'm sure to probably be stopped and 
searched on the street, put in detention, and have may, hopefully have my rights to a fair trial and hearing <laughs> observed. But I will, I will be investigated and, and prosecuted if I have committed a crime. Um, but companies don't face that same reality, particularly in this Western world. So, yeah, sorry, it's a little bit of a long one, but I'm currently um, exploring my status of being in between jobs. Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's brilliant, actually. I mean, we do need this kind of um, introduction, especially coming from you and, and your experience. And I, I hear it that that is one of the reasons why in our society now there's a gap to being a human right activist. And that's what a lot of Olga, your student, as you were mentioning, are feeling that they want to contribute and change. And hence, I think that is one of the reasons why we want to do this podcast is because it's a vehicle to actually fill that gap in the society where these young people want to do uh, this kind of human right activities uh, around these corporate powers who you say that have become um, so powerful that they are beyond governments. Uh, sometimes uh, so okay so how what 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 are we thinking about how to be a human right activist what do you think of it i th- i think it would be a good discussion to actually yes i think we you know we have to distinguish between um human rights defenders which are people who um in their everyday lives uh, face severe risks real risks including risk of death um to defend their own rights or the rights of others, and so these are these are people whose uh, lives spin around in the injustices that they see or they suffer themselves. And where, while you know, we can think in our cozy classrooms in the in um, the University of Greenwich, we can think, oh, you know, this is unfair or this is unjust. Or this is my right has been violated. Um, we don't we don't face those realities of. Uh, of uh, the human rights defenders do so that that's one category of people the and the other category is human rights activists and this as Seema says we can consider in a wide um, way as everybody who has a, a human rights conscious uh, is conscious about the rights of themselves and of others and takes the opportunity to act upon this consciousness and actually you know the uh, boat important part of their time and in our case of their professional lives to this. Uh, one thing that I wanted to explore was the, this professionalization of uh, of being a human rights activist because I think when we started, um, uh, you know, the, the people have been obviously fighting for human rights for, for decades, but the way has become a profession. I think um, Seema and I probably have seen it much more in which you can choose a career path of human rights activism and I think it probably is similar now with environment as well in which um, if you don't have several languages have done several unpaid internships uh, uh, in the some of the big NGOs and um, uh, Jaggle know how to do podcast and website you probably won't be able to be a human rights activist which is and whilst we took the long windy road of uh, in your case starting um with uh, uh, sitting at the other side of the of the fence, and in my case, having to teach um, uh, European law and commercial relationships between uh, the EU and Mercosur, which uh, you know it has its human rights dimensions, but it was pretty boring at the time. Yeah, 
I mean, one thing I feel about the corporate account like space is that, you know, I think one of the issues that we always have and why I'm more or less obsessed with multinationals, you know, is because of their cross-border presence, right? So, you know, if they're committing, uh, you know, issues or directly consequencing, you know, hitting, impacting people, you know, in Indonesia or in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Pakistan, in India, you know, but yet they're headquartered here in London, um, you know, there is a significant gap, right, in accountability. And I, and, I, and I feel like this was one of the factors that, for me, drove me to this field. You know, if there are human rights abuses happening in Greenwich, in London, there will be people, you know, because people are inherently, I think there are more inherently good people that want to rise up than evil people. And I think, or complac- complacency is an issue that we need to also discuss. But I think when when the human rights abuse is visible in front of them and within their jurisdiction, in a Western country at least, people there is enough uh, civil society interest to basically rise up against it, right? You know, if there was a campaign to tackle homelessness in uh, Greenwich, uh, I think London is even makes it more complicated. But if it was even brought down to Greenwich level, you know, I believe there would be action taken. You know, if it was organized, this community mobilization, you know, exists and and is strong. And I think community mobilization is incredibly interesting. But for something like a multinational and corporate accountability and for abuses that happen across the borders, this is a real struggle, you know, in the work that we have done and trying to motivate people who are actually um, enjoying the benefits of what many of these companies provide to them in terms of good and ser- goods and services, food, um, you know, it's very difficult. I think people really feel like, how do I... You know, I I need an iPhone, you know, so how, you know, uh, I raise questions to Apple, Samsung, all these all these uh, big brands about what I hear are human rights abuses happening in the DRC where children are basically working uh, at basically no pay to basically, you know, bring get cobalt, which goes into these batteries. I hear this is happening, but what can I do about it? You know, and, and ultimately, I think it's that. The companies are benefiting from that. They're benefiting from the fact that the abuses are happening in a, in a place that, you know, their consumers, you know, are us people, you know, cannot see it and cannot feel it directly. And I and I feel like that for me is like the motivation about, you know, we do have this professionalization, which I think is great. I'm not answering Olga's question. Uh, but what I feel is that the professionalization, I think it was a you know, has its goods and its bads. I think part of the weakness of the professionalization is that we we don't know how to talk to the everyday person on the street about the issues around corporate accountability, because actually it is it has it is a little bit complicated. That <laughs> there is this, you know, there is a lot to it, and I think that actually the challenge for us, if we want to build more human rights activists within, let's say, London or the UK or you know, the Western Spain or Canada is that we need to actually start to, you know, make them less complacent about, you know, their relationships, you know, with these goods and services that these mass massive multinationals are providing them and actually demand more, demand more in terms of, no, I want, I want, I want accountability. You know, I want to have ensure companies are respecting all the abuses in it. I want, uh, you know, I want to have, you know, we kind of need, need them to basically demand conditions that are attached to their products. That's yeah. what we need to do. It's interesting when you say we need them Us. to do this. Yes, I think, uh, you know, I think we, um, 
tend to, this is one thing that worries me about calling myself a human rights activist, trying to take this moral high ground as if I was someone uh, that was conscious and acted on my consciousness. Mm. And uh, it's something that it's traveling to me because, you know, that when I don't want to call myself an activist um, and, uh, or, uh, and I prefer to say conscious, when I realize, you know, I'm more than conscious because I devote my life to this, to teach others about this and to, to yeah. you know, advance research and advance the way the legal system can actually tackle this. But yeah, I, I, I want to be humble in terms of, you know, I, I'm not teaching anyone because I, I don't do it or I don't know how, don't know how to do it just yet or, you know, I still have to spend time reflecting about this. So that's, that's my uneasiness of my own tag. So, I mean, I, I feel that there are th three aspects um, which you have both mentioned now. One is that um, there is a little bit of a tension between understanding that what our responsibility is as an individual and our rights are, and then the corporations being so powerful and multinational. So you can l get yourself lost in personal responsibility vortex but still would not be managed to actually do nearly anything or maybe even mm -hmm. if you what, what do you do is not really helping anyone other than you being satisfied that okay i'm doing everything right so that gap creates the necessity for law to come into place mm -hmm which means that law is actually going to implement certain things on these larger scale um and that's why our societies work and that's why we have law. So it's the same definition, but it's one of the first time these companies exist, which are so powerful that they, they are beyond the country that we have to understand and unite in, an, in a way which is different than before. And you then mentioned that you believe in uh, individuals, which I do too, that they have innate good capacity. Then to do evil no one wakes up and see like you know i want to be mean today really i mean there are some people maybe i guess yeah there are some people unfortunately <laughs> well i mean what would we do without them you know it would be boring if everyone's good so but I'm like, you won't be good. our government Jeez. leaders <laughs> yeah, yes, what would yes, we yes, do yeah. without them exactly but that that means compassion i mean so that's the word you mentioned uh, that's a word I, I you can say that comes so so then there's an aspect of individuals compassionate hence the drive of you know working mm -hmm. towards more systematic approach and being this let's say an activist or a human right activist yeah. or someone who is defending that and so the need for law and then individuals so and then i would now want to come to the third aspect of is that how you yourself very personal story of you realizing if you remember it i'm sorry guys you, you're going to rely on your memories i mean how did you started your journey so if we can start from sima uh, i mean how did you realize that okay this is one of the problems like if there is some personal mm -hmm. memories if you do remember yeah i mean i i mean i definitely remember like as a as a young person and as a teenager i always believed in justice so I think it even starts with a core belief that, no, I believe in justice. I, I believe that we need to do things for others and, you know, try to 
create a sense of justice, you know, for others. And and I think particularly, probably because I grew up in Canada and probably because my parents were Im- Indian immigrants, I was always very attuned to, uh, you know, people living outside Canada and impacts outside Canada. So, I mean, as a young person, I traveled a lot to India, you know, and, and during the 1970s and 80s, India was looked... You know, is it, it was much more basic, I would say, than when you go to Delhi today, <laughs> Bombay, which is unrecognizable to me. But I think it was seeing, um, you know, I think all of that made me very interested in the rights of people outside Canada. Uh, not that I didn't care about the rights in Canada, but life in Canada seems so much better. It seems so much easier. You know, like people didn't need to, there are not, there were no children begging on the street for food or, you know, and I mean, that's, or people living across the road, you know, from a house, you know, under a tarp, you know, so you, it was the obvious things, I think, that as a child, I could see, which made me interested in, in the rights of people outside of Canada. So I think that's where it kind of starts from. And then I, and I, one of the reasons why I chose law as a profession is I thought, oh, the law would be a vehicle to basically uh, doing good, you know, and to basically getting involved specifically with human rights is what I could see I was interested, but also the international uh, platform of human rights. So, um, you know, and I, and so then I I did go to law school uh, and I think I was quite surprised that you know, when I went to law school, I was it was mostly about very specific technical areas of law, you know, like trust law, property law and tax law, which is probably one of the more useful classes that I took. But there was very little <laughs> on international law at that time and very little on on. I mean, you would, could have the sort of administration of human rights within Canada or within a province, you know, and I was interested in constitutional law, but, you know, anything that had to do with anyone's rights outside Canada were not part of the study of law, you know, where I went, you know, the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Um, And I think from there, you know, that's where it came from. And then, but, you know, I didn't really know there was a disconnect, you know, I needed a job and I was a lawyer and, you know, so I I kind of tried to bring, even from the earlier stage, these two parts of me together. So when I finished law school, I actually went to uh, like India and Nepal for 10 months and I worked with various um, development, two development organizations. So I always knew that there was this, I wanted to work with communities and I, I cared, I wanted to understand a bit more about what was going on, uh, you know, in these communities and in these other places and, you know, and how people were living. But then when I came back, I remember this contrast of like living in a village for six weeks, eating, you know, dal and rice twice a day, the same food for six weeks. Dal is lentils and rice. (laughs) And coming back to Calgary where I'd secured a job at this fancy law firm, and everything you put your hands under the sink and the water just comes. And I remember feeling like this is so crazy, um, you know, and that was that's the contrast in a way. This is the contrast of of the topic of corporate accountability and, and the same thing, because mm-hmm. you have two completely disconnected realities and two completely disconnected worlds. And and so I did continue to practice law. So, and how was it to um, go live every day with the water running and the having to be dressed in corporate uh, in a corporate uh, um, suit it was weird it was weird and but I think that's always been this part of growing up in in a world where you're kind of I felt like a hybrid between two worlds anyways you know so you mm-hmm. just sort of when you're in your your mainstream Canadian society you you do what mainstream Canadians do which is basically go work nine to five and in, in some office. 
Um, but to make a long story short, I mean, essentially it was from, I mean, so it was always there. And I remember actually the firm I was at was an oil and gas firm. And I remember we used to read, I used to go down during a break or in the day into the library and read the, read the paper. And I remember reading about Talisman, which was this oil and gas company and how there was this commission that was looking into, um, you know, human rights abuses that were connected to the oil, you know, it's, you know, in Sudan, obviously, but also connected, they were connecting it to Talisman's operations and basically their support to uh, the government and sort of all looking at whether or not they had aided and embedded, you know, the commission of war crimes, the, the Harker, I think it was the Harker Commission. And really, when I read that, you know, I was aware of, you know, the execution of the Goni Nine, um, you know, in Nigeria, you know, and that was around issues relating to Shell and the oil pipeline. Uh, you know, in the environmental contamination issues, like I knew that these issues, they really resonated with me. So in a way, I followed my kind of my instinct and my gut and I left the practice of law. I went and did a master's in international law. Did you have any kind of eureka moment? I'll just... uh drop the newspaper on the coffee table and walk out of here or was it <laughs> no. a, a bit of a longer <laughs> a longer process it was it was a bit longer so I, I mean I applied to do it masters it was a year longer you know so I just applied to do a masters at LSC and you know some other places and and uh, and that was it and I had then I had a plan you know and I kind of then I did the masters and which was just part of a movement of moving away from this domestic setup this domestic very kind of Canadian focused life, you know, and and then really from there, I ended up going to Asia, you know, to work with the UN Development Program uh, initially through an internship, which I was like, I'm too old to do this, but actually, that's how it happens. And then I was there for a couple of years, and then you know that was really when I started to really because my interest actually was in sort of people development. Uh, natural resources environment. And actually, when I worked with the UN, there are many things I really enjoyed and believed in that the work was doing. But one of the major issues is that you actually relying on governments, right? The UN is basically set up and most of these institutions within like UNDP in particular, on governments to be fulfilling their, you know, to, to care, to basically want to tackle uh, corruption issues, they want to tackle like, you know, rule of law issues and all this stuff. And I was like, this is not <laughs> this is not solving the problem. So and that brought me and then I came to London and, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was at a, an organized NGO where they were looking at corporate accountability issues. I was like, wow, you know, this is kind of my calling. It's you know, it's a bit you know, we're really going hard here. But actually, that was, you know, I first came to London in 2006. So it's basically from 2006 onwards, it has been this agenda of like trying to crack you know, these, it is all connected, you know, when you kind of look at all of it all together, it is all about these multinationals. It is about like them basically exploiting the environment, you know, taking natural resources, making money at any cost. And the any cost often involves human rights abuses, you know, and actually it's all for profit and it's all for a global brand often, you know, and it, and it is basically, and in some cases it's way worse, you know, so as a result of that, it was, it was basically what has led me to this place. Do I feel like I've had impact? That's what the podcast is for, is to create impact. Okay. So yeah. We, can, yeah. we can talk about the impact. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Please, Olga. Okay. Well, let's see. Yeah, I think um, uh, it does start as well with some kind of, um, you know, early consciousness and uh, um, understanding uh, or having a, a, a perception when you're a child of um, what's fair and what's not fair. 
But uh, in my case, um, you know, I'm Spanish. I was born in Sevilla in the south of Spain. And uh, I was born in 1976, which is just six months after um, the dictator that we had for 40 years died. And we have always said that, you know, we're probably one of the few nations that had to wait for the dictator to die in order to progress to democracy. So we weren't able to kick him out before. But that's not true. I mean, the, the, it's, um, there were 40 years of fighting against the dictator. And uh, the generation of my parents were the generation that fought really strongly for democracy and for being uh, uh, a part of Europe at the time was very important. I think Spain had a blockade, like an international political ostracism and, and economic blockade for these um, uh, most of these 40 years. So it was very important for them. They were, it's interesting because now days we talk about freedom fighters, but it's the same, it's the same uh, um, equation that I don't want to call myself a uh, human rights defender, obviously. They wouldn't call themselves freedom fighters. But uh, so w w growing up, I had this big... Um, consciousness of my parents did something very important you know that generation was the generation that allowed me to um, uh, I was two years old when the Spanish constitution was voted and so um, I always felt very proud of that and I, you know my my lullabies to fall asleep were uh, lullabies of uh, Victor Jara which was uh, a singer of, um, Chilean singer that was tortured and executed and and, you know, I grew up with uh, anti-upper hate zones, etc. So, uh, but I always felt slightly out of um, of place in terms of like, so what's my role? These people have fought for the world. They've given me a perfect world and now I have no role. So in this same thing, cozy, cozy Western uh, um, environment. Um, in 1995, we went to visit a friend of my mother in Mexico. And she was very activist around the um, Zapatista movement. The Chiapas um, mm -hmm. revolution uh, had happened. And we managed to go to the Selva La Candona, to the jungle. We managed to go in. I think we were the last uh, Western uh, um, group of people that were allowed in the jungle. After that, the government, the Mexican government, closed off and just did a massive offensive. Um, and uh, we went in and we went to visit some Spanish nuns that were in the in the middle of the jungle. And we it was my family and this friend. So my mom, my dad and my sister. And oh, I, it was an adventure as a teenager, but it also felt at some point I felt slight danger, which like there were soldiers with with guns and the the um, nuns in this village called Altamirano were um, telling us about being surrounded by the tanks and like uh, literally not being able to have outside news. They ask um, we we left them all the money we we had with us and all the clothes we had with us and their food um, because they were telling us how the government was withholding medicines at the border and uh, aid that was coming to them, medicines until the medicines will go out of, will expire and things like that. So we left everything we had. And I remember the the nun um, looking at the newspaper and 
and asking for the newspaper. And that was one of the most valuable um, uh, things that we could leave, the uh, outside news. So when I came back from that trip, I came back the same thing as uh, Seema, you have said about this realization that there's a world out there that actually is totally different and in which this real injustice and this real, uh, you know, I'm used to thinking, I was used to thinking, well, if there's an injustice, you know, I can always call the police or something like that. But you can't call the police because the police is the one that is actually uh, pointing uh, these people with a gun. So... I had all these dreams about I'm going to come back and I'm going to set up the Chiapas Solidarity Organization, etc. And I got back and I uh, got back to my studies. I studied law and I kind of, this was always at the back of my mind, but I just didn't do it. I just went back and studied tax law, same thing. And I studied, I did have international law. Uh, I hated tax law. I don't think it was useful at all. I studied... It's useful uh, for tax evasion. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's why probably that's not my research topic because I never understood it. Um, but um, so, and then, and then I just felt like a, a kind of betrayal, you know? So kind of like, you know, I betrayed these people. And I'm thinking, who are these people? You know, it's like, uh, how, uh, what does it mean I betrayed these people? I feel, uh, again, this dichotomy of uh, of feeling not uh, like a, hyp- a hypocritical, no? It's like, I have all these clothes, I have all this good mm-hmm. food, I have all this IT stuff, you know? So then I realized, really, that... Uh, that it was mostly when I tried to volunteer, and I went to I went to a, um, a house for uh, ex prisoners with a friend, and the the role of was to visit the prisoners and to have coffee with them. And I thought, okay, fine. So I can't help people in Chiapas. Let me see if I can help people here. Uh, and so it was just about having coffee with uh, people who had just come out of uh, prison and were trying to like integrate socially and have their first contacts socially. And I remember feeling so awkward, and I feeling I'm not good at this. I don't. I don't know how to be. I don't know how to be um, a good person to people who need me so I remember thinking I'll just just stick to studying so I I decided to continue studying because I just didn't know how to help people I wanted to and I couldn't help people in Chiapas and now it happened I couldn't even help people in the other side of the street that were um that were um uh, just needing me to have a coffee with them. So I went and do my PhD. My first topic was uh, EU-Mercosur commercial relations, and I thought I was going to die of boredom uh, for a good year. <laughs> so I came, I came and I said, um, I said to uh, my PhD supervisors and the academics, um, this is 2000, I said, I want to do a, um, a PhD on business and human rights. And I remember there was this uh, professor uh, who's um, a very kind of well-considered um, st- uh, professor, a female professor, mm-hmm. one of the few female professors in Spain at the time in international law, that said to me, kid, used to call me kid, kid, that's not an international law topic. Mm-hmm. It's like, but I no, people are talking about business and human rights. At the time, we didn't call it business and human rights. We called it multinational 
uh, corporations and human rights. So I said, I want to I want to study multinational corporations and human rights. And she mm-hmm. said, international law has nothing to do mm-hmm. with multinational corporations. Mm. International law is only for states. She said, go to the mm-hmm. um, uh, minutes of the International Law Commission mm-hmm. for this year and see which topics they're talking about. So I did that. And it was law of the sea. Um, the world trade, uh, mm-hmm. trade, but very technical, nothing mm-hmm. to do with human mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. It was consular relations. And I thought, this will kill me as much as Mercosur did. So, no, I want to study multi- multinational corporations mm-hmm. and how in, uh, human rights can uh, can address this. So I got my way. This um, professor was in my PhD panel and she said, you know, you know, you stuck to it <laughs> and uh, well done. I still think this is useless, but well done for sticking <laughs> to it. What, what year was that, Olga? Can I ask? So, yes. Yeah, so uh, I did my Bible for my PhD in 2006, mm-hmm. but I had. Uh, uh, so, yeah, my the my um, conclusion of my um, PhD is um, a new UN special representative for business and human rights has been appointed. Maybe this means this topic will become a bit more mainstream because <laughs> I closed my PhD in 2005. Yeah, wow. nice. Okay. So um, the themes uh, which I was listening to, it's, it's thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's 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 interesting to listen to someone's journey um, mm. in, into especially this world. Uh, Seema, you mentioned about impact. And I think it would be good when we uh, just when we are closing this conversation, we would maybe uh, reflect on in, in our pilot episode that what themes maybe mm-hmm. come out of this conversation. So you mentioned about impact. So it's it's maybe something how we can understand through this journey what impact can we make. And Olga, you talked about your experience of being in Spain and and um, witnessing the older generation you grew up with. Mm-hmm. So how, like your love and compassion for endorsing somehow our our planet to, to to the next generation, like what is our responsibility? And and that sense of uh, taking on this responsibility and being effective means somehow, you know, these two things are interlinked, which is impact and mm-hmm. responsibility. Uh, so I, I think we, we, before closing, we can all agree and we can agree to our listeners that, well, in this podcast, I think that's what we are doing. We will be honest in exploring these topics. Mm-hmm. We would explore contradictory issues that the batteries we are using to record this podcast for sure come from a place which is not ethical. Mm-hmm. And the melancholy somehow of our uh, colleagues, our ourselves, uh, to be the savior somehow. There's, there's always this issue uh, of, okay, well, I want to be a human rights activist, but I don't want to be a savior. I don't want to have this ethical somehow, um, you can say superiority in some way, but I still want to work. So how to await it? Because I think we can also address the emotional issues mm-hmm. which people face while going on these paths. And yes, uh, effective altruism somehow what can we do? What other people can do? What other people can learn, Seema and Olga, from your experiences? And what I can learn from your experiences mm-hmm. where I would be more effective in actually achieving these things which mm-hmm. are coming from 
uh, either these uh, intuitions we have or you, you said uh, you were conscious about the issues uh, when you were in Spain, Olga, and Seema, you mentioned that in Canada, you saw that stark difference of life, this disconnection. So uh, whatever emotions we um, experience from this chaos and conflict, how can we actually get it to focus on a path which is effective? And of course, you know, dealing with the the, the surge of emotion which comes. So I guess that's, that's, a, that's uh, amazing to be part of this conversation. So I'm I'm thrilled to actually continue this seriously. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you've done a really good job, Rasta, and actually pulling it to to actually where we want to go. It seems that actually having another conversation like this would actually even clarify it a bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I I I think that um, it is it is this combination of you know if, if we agree that you know we need to take on corporate power. And that means getting greater accountability. And that's how we do that. So one is maybe maybe it's like bringing it says how how do we tell people that they can make decisions with their career, with their life, you know, that can give them the, you know, I don't know, a positioning, you know, a place to basically um, do that professionally if they want to do it professionally. Um, And then addition to that, I actually think for even people who don't want to do it professionally, you know, how can they even with their other you know, in the things they do and the impact they have as a person, how can they engage with these issues, which is what you're basically flagging in your sum up. I mean, for me, also, what I think would be value is making how do we make it's the, it's this challenge of making this work relevant, you know, so people know that it is relevant to us who basically live here, um, you know, because I think that, you know, we people who work on corporate kind of are committed to it, but somehow we've not we've not convinced there is some work has been done to show how relevant it is but i think that's very new like connecting it to people here so they know that yeah it's relevant to me and i'm going to do something about it which is effective which may be pushing for better laws maybe pushing for more accountability through mps which may be you know pushing for grocery stores to take more positions on stuff which may be i don't know i mean so much there's so much to it mm-hmm. yes and i think uh, one thing that i um bring out in my classes when we talk about specific topics and we talk a lot about you know how our um uh, phones are built how the clothes that we wear mm-hmm. um and all sort of uh, issues of our everyday life how do we allow that our um, sister has been told not to wear um, these clothes, etc. And, you know, so and then I always say, and when they say, well, what can I do? I always say, well, think as a lawyer, because they are uh, uh, learning to be lawyers. So each of us, uh, think as whatever you are, whoever you identify with, this is your profession. So think as a, I don't know, as a journalist, think as a person who's in charge of uh, sourcing at the supermarket. Think as a person who has the the capacity, like you do, Rasa, to uh, bring these conversations together. Think as what is your uh, role in society and what's the role that you want to take? So in the case of my students, think as a lawyer, but in mm-hmm. the case of uh, all of us, think as, um, as, as who you think yeah. you are. Yeah, there, there's this brilliant, uh, very experienced anthropologist also. He's a social theorist. I'm, I'm not sure what the title is. His name is Stanley Krippner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from States. And he first introduced me to this concept that 
most of the conversations we have, no matter what, where, how far we go, is about the people who are inside this cocoon of technology. And I think that's what we have discussed a lot. And he described it that we forget that major, most of the population of the world is actually outside of that cocoon which we have built, which is our technology, which is our self-reflecting mirrors, which somehow you mentioned about this comfy uh, and a very easy life, which has tons of challenges of its own. And it's, it's yes, for sure. But I think it is in, it's really interesting that I just remember that actually it is so meaningful to understand that the people who are outside the cocoon are equally important and to not forget them. So thank yeah. you for reminding me that again right now. But before before we go, Ras, I would like to um, invite you to tell us about your own um, journey of, um, you know, your own connection between your consciousness and and uh, and the way you act. Because you and I have been having conversations about modern slavery for over a year now. And, and, um, and you as well have been part of this conversation that maybe before this you were looking at a, diff- a different way so tell us a little bit as well but why why do you want to be here talking to us yeah yeah well for sure i mean um i've grown up most of my life in pakistan i visited india my family is from india i visited different places around there i've worked in a multinational company um i think exploring my relationship with these topic uh, comes from a place where I'm passionate about um, understanding how far our brain plasticity can go, which means that how far can I actually go into a space which is alien to me, which I think is different to me, and I can be part of it, and I can compassionately consider that alien, most strangest part, uh, something so close that it becomes mine. Hence, the others what we call others, somehow if we truly understand who we are, how we are making sense of this world, uh, we would not see them as others. Hence the things we are trying to do and prioritize would either become really complicated at first, and that's why we, we avoid these kind of scenarios. So it's useful to have this uh, boundaries. Mm. But at some point, at some level, when we are living in a global village, I think those boundaries does not really serve us anymore. And hence, this is just something which I'm exploring personally. Hence, this conversation is a very important part of it. And I'm honored to be here. And uh, yes, personally, it just happens that I happen to be in a multinational company working for a corporate social responsibility program of their own, which they call it CSV, which is Creating Shared value the difference between csr and csv they can they, they say that harvard have defined this new definition that corporate social responsibility means giving donation but creating sh- shared value means investing in sustainable uh, projects like water pur- purification plants or building labs so so the multinational company was doing that so that's how mm. i got introduced to this uh conundrum pretty much where okay so the brands I saw is adding sugar to increase their sales hence addicting people to the most I I have some allergic 
reaction to somehow I'm very um yeah I, I consider it my ethical responsibility to not eat sugar somehow I just I don't know I consider it equally as if I'm doing cocaine or something not that I've done cocaine uh but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't mind telling actually to be very honest but uh that's how much I don't like sugar mm-hmm. hence I see them adding sugar literally talking in places where oh yeah sales are down increase sugar I know I know it's crazy. I love it. <laughs> but but also there are people in the multinational company which who were working mm. truly they thought that they are making change they thought that's the only way to make change. Hence I was introduced to this kind of marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I've studied business so yes I've studied operations management and then I started social research because I then wanted to go towards researching these scenarios. and that led me to where i am right now and that's it <laughs> that's wonderful that's yeah. led us all to to be yeah, here yeah, talking yeah, yeah, and exactly. uh, to have many more issues to explore yeah. and we'll we can start with the difference between corporate social responsibility and corporate accountability <laughs> in yes. our next episode and now corporate shared value yes, yes i like that see it's, yes. yeah this it's it's a whole whole <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's oh, we've definition. moved from uh, responsible business conduct to corporate shared, shared value. value. Corporate oh. shared values. They call it CSV. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, there's a whole. Yeah. But I think so. Thank you so much, everyone, for being with us. Thank you, uh, like to you know, uh, contributing Olga and Sima, uh, and and you would. Uh, so what we would try to do is that next episode, all all three of us may be there. Maybe mm-hmm. Olga would be there interviewing someone. Maybe Sima would be doing interview, or maybe I'll be doing, or we. three would be there with a guest so let's see we are still exploring the format uh, other than that maybe next episode we can explore topic about clean energy you know we we all talk about this clean energy revolution mm. and Seema has done a lot of work around it and i think if uh, if we can mm. explore more into it that'd be great wonderful yeah. great thank you thank you, thank you. bye